Hello and welcome to yet another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and in this episode, Peter Kadzis and I do something a little bit different. We talk with Ed Lyons and Jeff Simone, the guys behind the Lincoln Review podcast and two pretty well-known Republican interpreters of the local political scene. At one point in our confab, Jeff likened it to some of the greatest moments in television history. I'm talking about the handful of crossover episodes that brought Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley together. That might be giving us a bit too much credit, but our discussion at WGBH's Boston Public Library studio was both intriguing and enjoyable, marked by some vigorous debate, but also some unexpected points of agreement. Take a listen. I think that one reason Peter and I were really excited to have you guys come in is because obviously we are living in a somewhat unique political moment right now in which national political concerns are converging daily, almost hourly, with, uh, with state-level issues and questions. And I think we'd like to start off by getting your take uh, on how Governor Baker is doing, managing this really unusual political moment. So where do you two come down on the governor's performance at this point in time? Well, if you listen to the Lincoln Review podcast, and you should, and I feel like this is uh, when Happy Days met Laverne and Shirley. This is the premier Boston (laughs) podcast crossover episode for us. Uh, If you listen to Lincoln Review, uh, Ed said this a few months ago, and Governor Baker has set the bar for how a governor should act. I don't think, I'd be hard-pressed to think of any governor in recent memory that has done as good a job as he, as quickly as he. And uh, I'll stand by that. Ed said it, but I'll, uh, I'll reiterate it right here. Does that, does that assessment hold, Ed, or would you freshen it perhaps? Did you, how long ago did you guys make that uh, or did you add make that assertion? Well, we had to win first, I, right? I did that so. about four months ago. I would say now that... Wait, you did it four months ago no. before... Uh, wait, wait. Help me, help me with the... Uh, no, I meant that we, we, we've before done... The, okay, so before, before the, uh, we had a new president, you made oh, an yes. assessment. Oh, yes. So, I mean, I would say this. I think... Because that's really, the, I think, the hook for our interest is how's he doing in the Trump era? So, so I think what I will say about Governor Baker in general is that I think he's doing very well inside of state government, but he has a lot of problems outside of state government that are that are bleeding into state government. I think it has to do with the politics coming down from Washington. I think it has to do with, you know, health care costs getting beyond his ability to constrain them. I think that the sales tax and the gambling revenues of the state are declining in a way no one thinks will come back again. I think he has tremendous problems externally that are making that are affecting his ability to, to maneuver internally. I think how he handles these two worlds is going to define uh, the rest of his term and what the campaign looks like in 2018. Do you put the Trump trickle-down effect on a level with the other problems that you rattled off, or does managing his relationships and Massachusetts' relationships with the Trump administration, is that in a different league than the other challenges you're talking about? I, I think that the, the Trump relationship matters a great deal in terms of his brand and how he's seen and what people's expectations are for the office of the governor. I do think that there are many concrete issues with Trump. Um, obviously, you know, Medicaid, one of the four people in Massachusetts is on Medicaid. I think that there are big changes being thought about in Washington. 
any, even a small change would have a huge impact on our finances here, so we have to manage that. There are a lot of other issues involved, so there are both concrete things with Washington, both with President Trump and with the Congress, and then there are political things. They are both extremely important, and it's interesting to see how he's been trying to manage those things. But he also, he, he's built up two years of political capital and been putting it in, in the bank for that time. So if they, if theoretically there was a 2016 election where Trump and Governor Baker were elected at the same time, people might not have a frame of reference. They've had two full years of getting to know him and watching him perform, and who, who's going to challenge that? That's, it's. I think it's just it's silly. You can speculate at that point. Obviously, we're in Massachusetts, and any any challenger is going to be a strong one just by the numbers. But in real terms. Tell me, tell me something significant he can get knocked on, and you really, you well, really can't. I, I'm Peter not, can't. Well, I'm, I, I'm not sure it's an issue um, so much as a, a person. Um, I, I think if Mara Healy ran, um, that would be a real challenge. I don't see any of the Democrats being mentioned being a challenge. But um, this issue of Trump is a very dicey one. For Charlie, because there are a lot of Democrats who voted for him who just want the governor to join in the mass denunciations of the president. Um, I don't think the governor should. Um, I think the governor should focus on running Massachusetts and let the Washington delegation slap the president around. But, but they, do, you, do you think, though, that those Democrats that are calling for him? to hit Trump harder in any way, shape, or form are open to the idea of accepting him as a next-term governor? Because I would say that it's one and the same. They're going to knock him whether he does or does not. No, I, I, I think that th there are Democrats who are Baker voters. I, I know too many of them. Um, I'm surprised at how deep, especially among women, the anger towards Trump runs. And I think um, this is a, a challenge for Baker. It's, it's not his fault. I mean, this isn't like when we say it's a challenge and, and that's a code word for, oh, the candidate messed this up and now he's got to dig himself out of it. Um, this is a very dicey thing. I mean, I, I thought he did as good a job as humanly possible to distance himself from Trump. Um, he was never with Trump. I mean... <laughs> he, he even embraced the indignity of um, in, in, in endorsing Chris Christie. But for Democratic women who voted for Baker um, this last time around, Donald Trump is going to uh, represent a, a, a problem for Baker. I'm not saying it can't be overcome, but it's going to be a challenge for him, I think. Two quick related questions. When you guys look at the field of possible Democratic challengers, who gives you most pause, and is Baker going to get a meaningful primary challenge from the right? Oh, Jeff and, uh, no, no meaningful challenge from the right uh, for a primary at all. He's got, what, $5 million in the bank. Uh, there may be some uh, RWNJ, as we call them, the right-wing nut job that pops up, but they won't <laughs> go anywhere. Um, meaningful challenge, uh, nobody so far. I mean, everybody talks about Maura Healy. But I don't see that as much. I don't think who challenges Charlie Baker is the bigger scenario. I think who challenges Elizabeth Warren is the biggest 
uh, and what the, dro- the voter turnout, if she has a serious challenger uh, in two years, and there might be, I don't know, um, and what kind of voter demographics you see in that race and how it affects the gubernatorial race and if, if people split their tickets. That's the bigger so, so, risk. Hold than- that tantalizing thought yeah. for just a moment because we definitely got to talk about that. Ed Lyons, uh, meaningful challenge from the Dems and meaningful challenge from the right for the governor? Uh, I think there will be a primary challenger for Governor Baker, despite the fact that I think it's a bad idea. I don't think our party is strong enough at the state level to have primaries for statewide office. But I think that um, Governor Baker has done a lot of things which have upset uh, a lot of conservative activists in Massachusetts. I think the Planned Parenthood announcement that he would uh, seek to substitute state funding, the substitute for a loss of federal funding for Planned Parenthood's non-abortion health care services, really kind of, in my mind, guaranteed that there will be a socially conservative challenger to him. I think that in, I don't know his personal views on any of these issues, you know, the transgender law, the Planned Parenthood thing, a bunch of other things. Um, but if any of them were done politically in order to sort of box out um, the attorney general from running against him, that I think that the cost of that is real angst amongst conservative Republicans and many activists. I think they're going to demand that somebody um, represent that frustration against Governor Baker, uh, and I think we're going to see somebody. So are we talking like Jeff Deal or... No, uh, here, so here's the other funny thing about Governor Baker. No, I don't see him The reason why him. that... It, yes, it, it, people talk about uh, Jeff Deal, but the problem with our party is that Governor Baker is so dominant in terms of the fundraising, the the... The, the, the networks of people that he knows, the power, the influence. I just want to mention to listeners, nothing bad is happening at this particular moment. That sound that you hear is the sound of beautiful frothed milk here <laughs> in the newsfeed cafe at our airy, ethereal Boston Public Library studio. So sorry to interrupt, Ed, but I think people might have become alarmed as they heard that sound rising in the background. So <laughs> carry on. I didn't know what it was. Uh, so I think that Governor Baker dominates the mass GOP in a way that I don't think you see of any governor of any other party, state party in the country. And almost all of the party's assets in terms of brand, fundraising, network, everything else is wrapped up in Governor Baker. And it's very difficult for other people in our party, even if they're office holders, to have assets that aren't related to Governor Baker. And anybody who's going to challenge Baker has to have, have to bring some sort of assets to that challenge. But if you go against Baker and you lose or cause him problems, that you probably lose a lot of support from people yeah. in the party who don't want Baker hurt. So it's, it's the, nobody who has assets is going to run against him and risk losing them. That leaves people who don't have pull classes to run against him. So yeah, I they, think it will be something we have They have to get 15% at convention. They have to get 10,000 signatures. I, it's just a tough pull. I just don't see him. I mean, if there's a challenge versus a meaningful challenge, if you want to split the difference, I, there's no meaningful challenge there. I think right, it will be a challenge. We, before we move on to Congress, how about uh, among the Democrats? Who gives you pause as a possible You mean challenge? other than looking up who they are? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think, I think. You've, uh, that's a great line. I know you've written about uh, one of them, Jay Gonzalez, and his role in the healthcare. Uh, yes, I, am the, I am the state health health connector expert. Yes, I, I wrote a piece, sort of joking about. Yeah, well, hey, when did when so, did he leave the so office? I know you're more informed than you're pretending to be. Well, yeah, other than looking up who they are, uh, would Maura Healy worry you if uh, you decided to run? I'll get to Healy in one second. I think there are, unlike the Republicans, the Democrats have a great bench. Um, they have plenty of serious people who, who run for governor. Uh, you know, obviously, Sadie Warren, uh, you know, even people like uh, Dan Wolf. Um, Jay Gonzalez is a good citizen. He could run for sure. Um, there he are many, is running, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I mean, run and make it, you know, a credible campaign that it wouldn't be silly. Um, and it. I think that, um, however, I don't think any of them has the stature 
to or the resources to be able to compete with Governor Baker. And I think that it's unlikely those candidates would draw in the funding and attention outside of Massachusetts in order to make the run credible. So I, I think that, um, in my mind, uh, only uh, the Attorney General could mount a campaign with you know, the resources and the charisma uh, in order to be able to make it competitive against Governor Baker. And it's my guess that she would be the only candidate that Team Baker is worried about. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I would tend to agree with you. I, I mean, just so the listeners understand, what, what Baker needs to do to be reelected is to get about 20 percent of the Democratic right. Democrats to vote. And um, that's why if, if I were Charlie Baker, I would worry about Maura Healy because of that 20 percent figure. I don't know enough about how Dan Wolf would translate you know, onto the larger stage, but he strikes me as a serious and smart guy. By the way, it's not that Gonzalez and Seti Warren aren't. I, I just don't, I don't think they have the oomph. I mean, look at this time. No, if, if Healy gets in, she gets the nomination. Oh, no, if Healy does, but I'm saying. No, if she gets in, it's a no-brainer. It is she, a she, has that, she has that locked yeah. up. Yeah, and, and, and let's, the, the thing, up until the St. Patrick's Day breakfast, and uh, pardon me to the listeners who, who I'm repeating myself here. I didn't really, I, I didn't take seriously at all, you know, consideration that she might be thinking about it. Um, I'm, I'm not saying she's going to run. You mean her nine town halls in the past month haven't? <laughs> no, no, but th- that, but, but it was, no, it was the way, it was the way in which she told the jokes. You know, mm-hmm. it was that athlete's competitive edge. You know, there was huh. just a little more edge than I had seen before. And as Baker sat immediately to her yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that was psyching out the opposition. Now, she, she loses nothing if she doesn't run, but she took, you know, she, like Deval Patrick, you know, was the outsider who came in and showed, well, the hollow core, the, the, the Democratic estab- the feeble Democratic establishment in this state was. Yeah, she beat Marty Walsh's preferred candidate, Warren Tolman. Yeah, and, and, Warren's a, and Warren was a guy of well, substance. But you have to look at what's going on with the Democratic Party right now. Because, I, you know, you can, you can cut it any way you want, but somebody who... They seem brain dead well, to me. Seem, well, they are, but that's another story. But everybody, the person who checks all the boxes for the Democratic Party is going to get those nominations and get the biggest push behind them. And Maura Healey checks the boxes, the demographic box, boxes. Now, the, 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 She's also got the, more the, native political talent. than I mean, Dan, Dan Wolf, I think, can give a sort of a Bernie Sanders-esque stem winder. But sure. you compare her when Peter was talking about oomph. I don't think she's at the Deval Patrick level in terms of her, native political talent, but she's got more than the others. Uh, I'll tell you, about. I would d- d- submit. Agreed. Just when 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 Mara Healy appears at this table, uh, it, you know, on Boston Public Radio, um, her crowd is larger. You know, the people who come to see her is a larger crowd than come to see Governor Baker and come to see Marty Walsh. And the crowd is almost all women, not exclusively, almost all women. But I remember watching her on the campaign trail, you know, would be at all these candidates' nights. And, Adam, you did some, I did some where, you know, we take our turn being the guest moderator and stuff. The people in the crowd, no matter what party they belonged to, liked her. 
You know, it was just, they just liked her. And um, that's a pretty good place for any politician to start. Her biggest risk is doing it now or, f- or in 2022. Uh, that's, that's the only calculation now, because she'll have a much easier time of it four years after my, uh, next year's election. My totally irrational take on that is that if she's, the longer she's in as attorney general, the curse of the attorney general yeah, then yeah, kicks right. in. You know, and the, the curse of the attorney the general face. is that um, uh, no one has been attorney general and been elected governor largely because the theory is that as attorney general, the longer you're in there, the more people you sue and the more people who are annoyed The more people you, you piss off. Yeah. So Martha Coakley, Scott Harshbarger, Frank Bellotti. The closest um, you get is Bill Weld, who is what, U.S. attorney, right? Yeah. Which is right, a little, right. little bit but The different. thing is that she has, she has almost nothing to run on. That even the attacks that Martha Coakley made, that Baker doesn't share our values or all of our values, Governor Baker has given the left a lot of what they've wanted. And it's difficult. So what does she run on? Does she goes, oh, it's the vision thing, which is kind of code for more taxes and more spending on infrastructure and education. That what else does she run on? I guess she could shoot for, shoot for the moon and promise single payer, although it's hard to see how it happens based on what happened to I'd Vermont. say the vision thing, and then it would be he hasn't been full-throated enough in his pushback. That, and I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure if that's a that, winning that, argument. That's because nothing. But, that's but, nothing. But it will motivate people to make her the candidate, right? So I think that that argument plays amongst the people that would have to give her an enthusiastic nomination for governor, I mean, on the Democratic side. I don't think it's a great thing, but this is why I personally think this should run now and not wait. It makes sense on paper for her to run in four years, but just like Barack Obama, who was told, well, why don't you run four years from now? Right. I think yeah, it's like, but your the, moment yeah. is now, even if you're not ready. My guess is that she doesn't think this is the right time for her in terms of the arc of her career. People, people are going to say, we have this time when national politics is dissolving people's attention on Governor Baker reducing the lines of the registry, and it's making people think that, that what you're actually you're the spokesman in chief for Massachusetts politics nationwide. That doesn't seem rational to people like me who care about policy, but I think she, her supporters will say, now is a time when you can leverage something that Charlie Baker can't do anything about. If you wait four years, he'll fix everything in government and you'll get nothing. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Give him another four years and it'll be utopia. All right, let's turn to Congress for a little bit. I, I am interested to kick around the question of challengers to Warren, but before we do that, Jeff Simone, you said something a few minutes back which suggested to me that you think that you fault the all-Democratic congressional delegation for not working in a bipartisan manner with the Trump administration. Did I understand you're just well, look, correctly it, or not? Here, here's, the, here's what baffles me. I, Donald Trump has been on record as saying he wants single-payer health care, and he wants gigantic infrastructure. Now, they've painted this guy as Satan. So anything now from this point forward, if they do something with him, it's this they pinning themselves into a corner. He's now they're working with Satan and making a deal with Satan. And that's that's a problem for us. I, a, a quick tangent. You guys had on Ira Stoll, as, uh, author of JFK Conservative, who I stole from you as a guest. And uh, if you read his book, JFK Conservative, there's a the core premise is fiscal conservatism and how JFK did not think it was wise to send dollars to Washington just so that they could come back to Massachusetts a little bit uh, modified to build a bridge. That's the infrastructure argument, and that's the one that Trump makes for federal infrastructure, as does the Democrats. So it make, it boggles my mind that if you're a Democrat, and you have been for decades talking about infrastructure repair, trillion dollars, this guy is what is putting on the table, working with Paul Ryan, who I am 
incredibly upset with at this point because he was he was the budget guy, he was the conservative uh, economic uh, principles guy, and now he's talking about working with the Dems and working with Trump on a trillion dollars of infrastructure, and the Democrats are just going to sit there and what? Sit on their hands? Uh, pout and say no? I mean, it's that baffles me, and it's childish. And Peter so Kedz, that's my point. You want in here? Well, yeah, Paul Ryan, you know, the thinking man's Marco Rubio. I mean, I always suspected Ryan was a dope. Now I know he's a, he's one of the most overrated people. I've thought this for years. Um, the, uh, I'm waiting for uh, Ed Lines and Jeff Simone to, to respond yeah, well, to that, your prior agreement no, no, he, with them with some agreement here, and they're not giving you anything. But I, I, I'll tell you, Trump... Um, well, he's full I, of crap. That's what I'll say. I, see, I, I would say you're directionally correct, because at the moment, the Democrats still don't stand for anything. Um, and, and, you know, time's moving on. You know, for example, why the day after Trump, Ryan, and the GOP failed, someone should have gotten up in Congress and proposed, you know, here's the five-point plan we need to put a, a, a patch on the ACA. You know, the ACA isn't going to explode, but there are things wrong with it. They, the, the Democrats are, are still in the Hillary Clinton mindset. It, it's by lack of default. It's, it, it's by default. It's for, for not having original thoughts for so many years. They don't stand for anything except... Do you want to come to this side of the table over here? Yeah, I know, right. Except being opposed <laughs> to Trump. And that worries me. We're going to have registration uh, papers for That is Peter a very valid critique, but i got to say... Jeff, it sounded to me like you were overestimating the possibility for collaboration on health care, for example. Because, yeah, I'm, Trump's on record as saying he supports single-payer care. He hasn't said that He in doesn't a while. care about and, what, what happens. No, but so but, but the when the, the proposed change, the proposed new health care plan was hammered out, he didn't say, you know, I want to talk to all the Democratic leadership and all the Republican leadership and come up with a bipartisan compromise we can all agree on. He worked with Paul Ryan to come up with something that was totally opposed to whatever single-payer vision he may have had back in the day. So that's not – I don't see that as a window open waiting – or I didn't see that before the demise of the AHC as a window that the Dems could have climbed through if they'd wanted. As of this moment, he's now talking about working with the Democrats instead of the Republicans. Now, he could be full of it. I don't know. You are but saying the problem that, though. He, he is, and yet he's also talking about – fighting the Democrats along with the Freedom Caucus in 2018. Yeah, well, he, he'll just say whatever. Right, he'll, say so, what, he'll say whatever. My point is, if you want to focus on the, the Democratic congressional delegation, is they can get a fair amount of what they want, and it's up to them. It baffles me why they are not acting in a manner that would attempt to get at least some of what they want. All right. So to get well, back to campaigns, mm -hmm. as we uh, have tended to do a little bit more than I expect in this conversation, you think, Jeff Simone, that there's going to be a meaningful challenge to Elizabeth Warren when she's up for re-election? Oh, God. Uh, or you dream I don't, of it? <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe if I hit the lottery, I'll run. But uh, that's – right now – uh, the the people that are being discussed, nobody knows who they are. And and they're not acting in a serious way from anything I can tell on the ground uh, or talking to who they need to talk to to get their operations going. Uh, you know, there's been a couple people that I want, and I'm not even going to mention their names because I don't, you know, know where they stand. They're just possibles. Uh, but 
it could happen. Look, Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is a firebrand. Elizabeth Warren is a firebrand. If somebody is somebody catches a good burst of air, um, they could make something happen. They could absolutely do it. But uh, unless Tom Brady throws his hat in the ring, I'm I'm punting on this one. Headlines. I'm wondering how long you think this era of total. Republican control, even if you want to append an asterisk to the president's uh, name and party affiliation, how long is this era of total Republican control of the federal government going to last? I don't. They don't seem to have control of it, but I understand what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, control in name only. I, yeah. So I don't know. I, I think that that um, you know the Republicans would have to lose in the wave election, as the pros call it. And I don't see what causes that wave right now. The Democrats are getting more votes for the House every couple of years now. They're now in the habit of getting more votes than Republicans for lesser seats because yeah. of the way the districts all work and where people live and all that. So it's not that the Democrats don't have the support of the majority of voters for the House. They're just not winning enough elections. And I don't see right now what happens that you flip a lot of these, a lot of these seats. I think there would have to be a crisis um, perhaps like a recession or something that we don't see right now or, or something terrible happening with Trump um, that, that is not visible right now. So yeah. I, I, I really don't see it flipping. You don't see barring, the barring calamity. No, historically bad popular, uh, popularity ratings um, being something that could lead to that sort of wave election. I mean, but they'll he's adjust. not doing too hot. No, they're not, but they'll, they'll adjust. I think the, big, the more likely scenario is probably more economic related. If you see a downturn in the economy, I think that's when Democrats can just play a very good blame game. And that's when you'll see flip, when people well, feel it in their wallet. Because unfortunately, I think culture has shifted. I think 2016 was a cultural election for a lot of folks. And I think you posted something on your Facebook page the other day, Ed, that, about how the demographics shifted for white working class or white voters. And, and there's, a, there's more of a cultural election. And since Trump won, the Democrats haven't changed the tune. It's still the same playbook that they ran for the last eight years. So until that changes... I have seen some or, celebrities dispatched to uh, red states to help people get to the polls in special elections right. and that sort of thing. And yeah. I'm saying I don't that even, it's worked in maybe less than half, but uh, it, it, the, my, my point being is that when people feel it in their wallet, uh, that's usually when they're motivated to switch for the other person. Because if there's a crisis, don't forget that Trump is talking about increasing military spending. The Republicans are good at sounding tough on, on, on a crisis. There's no reason to believe that if there's some terrible thing that happens, and I hope it doesn't, that Republicans couldn't pivot and sound great, and it wouldn't necessarily put Democrats into office. I, I think Jeff is correct that I think it's more likely the fact that you know, a creeping belief that the economy is not working very well or that I didn't, my factory didn't come back yeah. Or, or some sort of management thing, you know, I think that's much more likely to cause wave election than, because it has to be a crisis. People, people would say that the Republicans are simply the wrong people to handle this international crisis. I want to say, geez, really? I mean, I mean, all the branding we've done around getting tough and all that, like, and we're gonna, they're going to give it to the Democrats? I have a hard time believing that will cause the wave. But I, mean, I don't want to know what crisis would cause them to think that. Not but it's not it. one that I can see. Yeah. I could be wrong. I would be remiss if I did not ask you guys before we wrap up to share a little bit of the conversation that you have when you two argue about the Trump administration. Jeff, Simone, you said early on that uh, Ed Lyons is suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. I'm assuming that Ed doesn't think that's a, uh, an accurate or fair description. Well, and without asking you to, to be 100% candid, if you could be like 95% right. candid, and 
just to share a little bit of you mean with other Republicans or, or between with us? the two of you when because oh. I'm sure that you have debates about this so we do um, often well, how do those debates run um, I think it's been a bit of a role reversal for me and Jeff I think as one of the 15% nationally Republicans who uh, don't support Trump at all and never will support Trump that I think that I'm usually as a moderate very pragmatic like I'm not really idealistic about policy in a way um, and what's funny is that uh, uh, Jeff is a proud conservative and is good at articulating conservative views, um, not as modern and pragmatic as me in terms of how government gets done. But what's happened is that uh, I'm the person who's become idealistic to say, you know, hey, Jeff, you know, we have all these principles about politics and America and how things get done. And this is a violation of all of that. And you would never have supported this a few years ago. Um, and it seems like but it, I'm honest about it, though. I mean, that, that's the thing. I think there's a, a sense of intellectual honesty. I'm not going to be a hypocrite about it. I, if Trump does what? something, if Trump does something that pisses me off, I'm going. But that's to all say pragmatism, it. right? In other words, that they're saying that okay, I'm going to be flexible and put up with uh, this horrible stuff because I may get something that I want. No, I'm not putting up with it. I'm just saying there's no point in quote unquote resisting it. Uh, there's, there's just he. There's this idea that there's some resistance out there, and I think it's a ridiculous. There are there notion. are marches. You can go to them if you like. There yeah, okay. are email lists. Well, and point shake your fist really in the air. Shake your fist you, in the air. That you see yourself as going from the pragmatic moderate to the hardcore idealistic moderate, and uh, and Jeff is as uh, as you tell it becoming a little more. Uh, a little more private. I don't. I don't. I, mean, I don't. I did not accuse Jeff of being a moderate here on the radio. No. I just. No. I just meant that he's being a bit more <laughs> pr- practical about what may and may not be accomplished at Trump I, that could never have been accomplished with Clinton being president. I would like to see them have a duel. Oh yeah, very very Hamilton. <laughs> I want to play. The, I want to play the part of, of Burr in that duel. <laughs> the, the, the thing about Trump, what it exposed for me is what I've known for a long time. It exposed how absolutely. Wait, we can't curse on this thing, right? No, oh, sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> How absolutely batshit crazy the left is, and when it comes to uh, when it comes to any common sense about uh, uh, with, with Trump, yeah, he's a liar. He's he's all the things you said, but when you when you when you try to make up things and go after him or exaggerate the things that you do exaggerate, what it does is it dilutes the actual things that he does wrong. So if it's a constant stream of half truths and sort of gotchas. When he actually does something, it's a lot tougher to ding him, and I'll be the one actually supporting the people when they're right, when they're actually right. And so it's a problem. Where, where, where was this careful consideration of criticism for the last eight years? Where was this, you know, hey, you know, Barack Obama, he didn't really do that. He only did this. I don't remember hearing any of that. See, I'm consistent. I actually think President Obama did a lot of good things. I think that... that I liked his drone program. So he killed a lot of bad guys. I think that's yeah. great. Um, but I just, I just think that I'm in the funny position of saying, you know, hey, everybody, you know, uh, I don't want to be flexible. I think, I think we have to just reject the president. And by the way, he is the president. I'm not going to delegitimize him like everyone in my Facebook feed did with Obama for the past eight years, claiming he's not a citizen and all that. So it is weird to yeah, be— but I didn't do that either. So no, but I, you just, didn't, I disagree you with his policies. I, I don't want to take up too much time with that. It's a but, podcast. We can go forever. <laughs> it's not our podcast. <laughs> we can't go forever on ours. So I, I, I think snip, snip. But by the, by the way— it is odd being a Massachusetts Republican because all Republicans in the state have dual citizenship between Massachusetts and the national level. And all of us have a conflict in the way the Democrats don't in the state between what we're hearing on talk radio, cable, and the Internet versus the reality of Massachusetts politics here where Democrats can connect them more easily than we can, even yeah. though there are differences. And I think that for someone like me, I am in direct opposition to what's happening in Washington as a Republican, but I am very much pro-Governor yeah. Baker here. And it is this constant clash between these two worlds for Republicans and we the Democrats don't have that here. 
thank you both for coming in and giving us a window into the dual citizenship. Dual, let me try it again because I couldn't say the word. Thank you both for coming in and giving us a window into the dual citizenship that you just described. Ed Lyons, Jeff Simone, the two guys behind the Lincoln Review podcast, really appreciate uh, having this conversation. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Thanks for having us. And my esteemed colleague, Peter Kadzis, as always, it's a pleasure to sit. This was a good one. Yeah, yeah. This was a good one. And that is going to do it for the latest episode of The Scrum. Thanks to Jeff Simone and Ed Lyons of the Lincoln Review podcast for joining me and Peter Kadzis. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you've already subscribed to The Scrum on iTunes, well done. Hopefully, you've also left us a rave review or at least tried to come up with one or two mild compliments. You can also find us on various podcatchers and online at blogs.wgbh.org scrum, where all of our many back episodes live on. Our producer is Jason Tureski. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. WGBH News.